hello, I'm Rachel Cook. Um, it's great to see so many people. Um, as you all know, this is Patrick Marber, one of our most um, celebrated writers. His plays include Dealer's Choice and Closer, <coughs> and his, um, his work in the cinema includes Asylum and Notes on a Scandal. Um, this year is turning out to be a good and happy one, as happy as a writer can ever be, for Patrick. Um, Closer was revived earlier this year at the Donmar, and, and, and it was wonderful. And now his new play, The Red Lion, is having a tremendous run in the Dorfman here. And um, as you probably also know, um, his adaptation of Turgenev's A Month in the Country, Three Days in the Country, is playing here. Patrick, um, of all the plays that you could have tweaked um, or messed around with, why, why this one? Well, I, I didn't um, uh, approach the National or a producer with this one. It was offered to me by uh, the producer, Sonia Friedman. Um, we'd been looking for something to do together for a while um, with the director, Ian Rickson, who has beautifully directed my play, The Red Lion. And Sonia said, do you know this play? Do you fancy doing a version of it? And I did know the play. I'd seen the production that Helen Mirren was in, in I think 93 in the West End. Um, and I remembered enjoying it very much. Um, and so I, I read it again. Um, I read Isaiah Berlin's version, which was the version last done at the National in 1981. And, um, I at first said no, I think it's too, uh, too long and um, I can't quite see the point of doing this again. And then it, it stayed with me and the themes of it and the feeling of it um, just grew on me over a period of a couple of months and I kept finding myself rereading it and thinking about it and feeling very moved by it. Um, and so at a certain point, we, we did a reading of it where we read, uh, we read a bit of the Berlin and we, then we read a bit of Brian Friel's version, which is brilliant. That was another reason I was intimidated by it. I just, I just thought Friel had done such a superb version. Um, what, could, what could I do? And then what changed for me was I, as I got to know the play more and more from hearing actors do this reading and reading the Berlin, reading the Friel, thinking, thinking, I realized that Friel had cut the child from the play. Mm. He just eliminated the character of Collier, who's 10. And um, having children of around that age myself, I thought, well, I, I really like this kid. I, I think he's important. Mm. And I found a way back into the material really via the child um, and what, this, what the events of this story would mean for this little boy witnessing it from afar, a bit like the go-between, in a way. It conjured yes. up for me some of that atmosphere of a, of a heady summer where things change irrevocably. Um, and that was my way into it. Um, but it was a slow, a slow arrival. Mm. And then I wrote it quite quickly. Um, in 2013, going into 2014, and then there was quite a long period of delay, and then eventually it found its way here. I, I think you said once, maybe in another 
context that infidelity can be a form of love. And I wondered about the, the process of, of rewriting something like this, a, re, you know, a very, very big, important play. Um, the chutzpah in that. I mean, how do you do it? What do you do? Do you sit down and, and, and go through it line by line, or do you just start uh, again at a certain point? No, I worked from a literal translation. Once I'd absorbed uh, Isaiah Berlin's and Brian Friel's, and then I read Emlyn Williams's version, and I read um, Richard Freeborn's version, which mm. was the version Helen Mirren had done, and then put them to one side and worked from a literal translation by a man called Patrick Miles, who's a Chekhov expert. But he'd done, um, he'd done this literal translation for the National in 1980. Mm. Um, I don't think Isaiah Berlin used it, because Isaiah Berlin speaks Russian, but it was there, it was hanging around upstairs. It's a very <laughs> old document. And I, and I used that as my basis, and I got in touch with Patrick Miles, who was uh, very moved. Um, he's now a man in his 60s, um, I think. Uh, seems to be. I haven't asked him, but he, I, would say he's, I would say he's in his 60s. Um, and he'd written this thing you know, more than 30 years ago, and out of the blue, someone contacted him and said, hey, I'm, I want to use your literal. Can we collaborate? And so he was my guide, really. Mm. And... Um, he was very approving of a radical take on the play because he felt the play was too long. Turgenev thought the play was too long. The play in its original form would probably take four or five hours to perform. It's massive. Um, and it's a very, very discursive play. Turgenev felt it was more like a, like a novel mm. in dramatic form. Um, and very modestly advised that it should never be put on a stage. And it, it wasn't performed in <laughs> Russia until he, Turgenev finished the play in about 1848-49, no one's quite sure. It wasn't actually performed until 1872 um, and didn't really enter the Russian repertoire until Stanislavski did a production in 1909. Mm -hmm. That's what made the play famous. This is a very long way round of saying, I felt I had license to... Um, do my thing with it because my literal translator was encouraging me mm. and the playwright himself um, uh, was very upfront about what he felt were the mm. inadequacies of his play plus there was the precedent of all these versions and, uh, and Ashton's ballet of mm. course which, yes. I, which I slyly reference in this production by using sh some Chopin music which mm. Ashton uses um, it's, not, it's not such a not such a sly reference now, no. is it? Because I've no. told you about <laughs> it. But it um, <laughs> it's my little joke. Uh, and, and the production is quite balletic. It's yeah. sort of a, it's a big open stage, yeah. and um, the movement of it is is a little self-consciously balletic. Um, so I felt there were all these other versions, and there were there are films of a month in the country. So I sort of thought it's okay. You're allowed to mess mm. with this one. Um, and then once I'd given myself the freedom to do so, I was. I decided to be very free with it because I think once you've decided to be unfaithful you might as well commit to that act of infidelity and just do your thing and just accept mm. whatever have a full-blown affair exactly so exactly rather than a flirtation um, now you warned me backstage that you you were doing this work quite a long time ago and you can't quite remember what it was that you changed and so on but mm. just in a brief way what were the things that you were most concerned to bring out? I mean, you mentioned at the beginning the fact that these themes 
growing on you. What were mm. the, the, to you, what, what are the play's themes? Well, certainly going mad in the country, which, <laughs> um, which I'd sort of done. I, I moved to Sussex in um, 2007 um, and <laughs> went a little bit mad in the country and couldn't write and came back to the city. So the yearning, there's a yearning for the city in the play and there's the feeling of that the, in the play that the country is beautiful but there's nothing there. And um, <laughs> I didn't find that in Sussex. I, 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 there, there was plenty there, but too much beauty for me to actually be able to write in. So that was, that was very much part of it. I love the fact that the play begins with a card game mm. and I like playing cards and I've written about cards. That was an important thing for me, the, the excitement that a card player feels at the turn of a card or a new hand, the optimism engendered by a new hand, mm. new possibility. Mm. It seemed to me resonant for this play where people are falling in and out of love with each other. The other thing I, I loved about it was the range of ages in the play. The, the, the youngest character is 10, the oldest character is uh, Professor Scharf and Anna, who are in their 70s. And I like that, that full range of love affairs, and this boy's love for his mother and for his tutor, and then the older people's lost love, mm. um, and then the middle-aged people, and then there are the young people discovering love. Mm. All these things, you know, I'm in, I'm in middle age now. Um, I was very attracted to mm. that, looking back, looking forwards. Mm. And, I mean, to continue your um, ballet, metaphor they're all in a kind of quadrille aren't they they're mo yep. mo moving around each other and, and there are all these it's like a kind of spider's web which you can because the set is so open you can see all these connections between them in, yes. in quite a it's quite quite a literal thing when you're sitting watching it yes it it's a very strange play um because it it takes a little bit of time to put its pieces in play mm. um really for the for the first 40 minutes, it's, it's all set up, and then hopefully delivery thereafter. Um, and so it takes its time, as Russian plays often do, as Chekhov does. Um, and then, it, then suddenly there are all these plates spinning. Mm. Um, Chetogenev spins very artfully, I think. Um, so that by the time you arrive at the fifth act, where everything um, resolves in mm. different forms, um, he's created this, this wonderful series of cogs. So mm. I, thought, I felt the machinery of the piece was very interesting and, and very unlike a modern play. Mm. Certainly nothing like a, the kind of modern play that I write, which usually has a plot and a subplot. Mm. This has plot, subplot, counterplot, underplot. Mm. And I, I like all it that. It does connect, I think, to all your plays because you've always written uh, funny plays and this, this version is, is a very funny version, but also mm. I would say that the overarching theme of your work is uh, loneliness. Most of the people in this play are lonely, even though they're cramped up against each yes. other. I don't know whether I made them more lonely than they are in the Turgenev. It suits <laughs> my purpose, but I, I agree. It is a condition of, of most of what I write, that the characters are, are lonely. Um, but I feel... Yeah, sadly, this is our predicament on this planet. Not to be lonely, but we are alone. Mm. Um, and um, the, the stage is a particularly good place for examining that, it mm. seems to me. Um, 
the loneliness of being with many other people. Mm. Um, let's talk about some of the decisions you made. Um, Patrick also directed um, his adaptation. H how soon did you know that you would do that? It's been quite a long time since you've directed a play, yes. especially here at the National Theatre, yeah. isn't it? I hadn't directed a play for 14 years. <laughs> and, um, I, Ian was going to direct the play in Rickson. And then we, we were in a sort of um, logjam of productions, happily, mm. uh, that he was committed to doing The Red Lion. And I really wanted this play done this year because it was hot for me. It was the first thing I wrote after a period of four or five years of not writing. Mm. And so it was very um, present and potent for me as a piece of writing. And I didn't want to wait another year. So in the end, Ian decided not to do it and I stepped in <laughs> and um, uh, I'm really glad I did. I had a great time directing this play and directing again. Was it obvious to you once he said he couldn't do it? Did you think, well, of course it should be me? Or? Yes, I, well, no, I thought um, I made a little list. Uh, <laughs> and Put yourself at the top no, of it. <laughs> I wasn't on the list. I made a little list and various availabilities were checked and no one was available. I mean, directors <laughs> get booked up years mm. in advance these days and so, um, and I also thought, well, I sort of know how I want to do this. I, I had no vision for how to direct The Red Lion, mm. never wanted to direct it. But with this play, I, I wanted to do it like this, for better or worse. I wanted it open, I wanted it watched, um, I wanted it mm, sort of modern, um, but mm. set in period. Mm. Um, so I had a... a a quite strong feeling about how to present this piece of work. Uh, I wanted to ask you about that because in with your other adaptations of Strindberg and Moliere, you you relocated them in a different time, whereas this does still look like a period yes. uh, drama. So wh why, why was that? Did you f feel that you had to do that somehow? Well, I felt this play um, is about a particular group of people at a particular time in history. Um, roughly speaking, after the death of Belinsky, mm. who I mention in the play, uh, though Turgenev doesn't, though Turgenev sort of mentions him in code, because he was quite a radical figure mm. who uh, Turgenev was friendly with, but couldn't really talk about in his play. Censorship in, in Russian theatre in 1850 was extreme. Mm. Um, uh, Turgenev had been in prison yes. for a period, for yes. um, thanks to the censors. So the dates really for me were the death of Belinsky and prior to the emancipation of the serfs, which was in 1861. And I felt these two things were important mm. in the play. Um, and I didn't want to do away with the serfs. I didn't want it to be about something, I don't know, they mattered to me. <laughs> um, that there were all these people tied to the land. Yeah owned by the landowner. At one point, Arcadi, who is the, the man who owns this landscape, um, he, he talks about, he says, this estate is 20 square miles, a thousand souls. Um, and he owns every single one of those people. They were called souls. Mm. And I thought that was resonant. Mm. Um, so I wanted to keep it in period, but I wanted to give it a modern feeling mm. and a modern sensibility in the way I always get very cross when I see period films or period plays where people seem to mm, behave unlike human beings. Mm. 
There's a veil, as, as if a veil yes. is between. Uh, as if people in the past were less passionate, yes. less intelligent, um, less beguiled by each other. I don't think that's true at all. Mm. Um, so, so that was my objective. I, I think it's good that you kept the serfs because they were important to Turgenev. So mm. it, that is one way in which you've been very loyal to him because he eventually inherited a big estate from his mother and then he freed lots of her serfs, didn't he? He so immediately freed the serfs. Mm. Um, I don't quite know what the serfs then did. No. <laughs> their freedom. <laughs> they probably he just wandered back. Yes, Turgenev <laughs> inherited an estate called Spaskoy. Um, which was b bigger than the one that yeah. um, people usually think that Patrick Miles, the, my Russian expert, he, he said, yeah, the estate in this play is kind of like the Turgenev estate. But these estates were incredible. I mean, Turgenev's estate might have been, I think, about 30 square miles. Mm. I mean, that's enormous. If you think about London, it's London. Yes. More. Yeah. It's massive. Um, uh, and the isolation, I think, is well can't be overstated. They, I mean were, they were empires. They yes. made their own stationery on yes. these estates. They yeah. made their own clothes. Yeah. People employed as cobblers on mm. the estate. Um, the bathhouses. The mm. all these things were fascinating to me. Yes. Not all of them are in the play. No. <laughs> but they were. They were in the research, and I loved being in that world. And I loved it so much, I didn't want to rip the play out mm. of that world. Now, another thing, I don't think this will spoil it for anyone because it's immediately apparent. Um, you, when the actors, um, when they're not involved in the action, are very often sitting around the edge mm -hmm. uh, in the wings, but we can see them. Yes. And I was, I was really interested in that. Why did you decide to do that? Two reasons. Um, in the play, in Tegenius' play, people are always interrupting the action. No one, no one can seem to get any privacy. Mm. The play is set in a drawing room, so three acts are in the drawing room. One act is in the garden, and one act is in a, a slightly uh, undefined place that I've turned into a sort of abandoned glass house. Yes. But in the Tegenius is a sort of folly on the grounds. But people are always coming and going. No one gets privacy. And so I wanted the feeling of being watched, that people, that you never quite know whether you can have this intimate conversation because someone might come into the room. But, but really for a technical reason, which is that it's a play of about 60 or 70 entrances and exits. It's a play of short scenes. The longest scene in the play is 10 minutes. Mm. But most of the scenes are two, three pages. Mm. Um, certainly in my version, in Tegenia's version, most of the scenes are five or six pages. Um, but that's its, that's its nature, it's mm. a coming and going play. And I didn't want to have to wait for people to come and wait for people to go. I wanted to find a way of the dramatic action being quick and mm. compressed. And so I made a virtue out of necessity and I compressed time with these entrances and exits. So someone will exit saying, I will go and fetch her. And then she's already there. As, he's, as he is exiting, she is present. And mm. I think it does a it's a slightly disturbing, disorientating effect, mm. but it's suggestive, I think, of the, the mood of the piece, mm. um, of strange sudden entrances and of people existing in the mind's eye of others, which mm. is something you can do very well on stage. Um, I, th I thought it was, a, a, w when I saw it, it was interesting. You had to sort of get your eye in. Yes. In the, in the same way that you have to get your ear in, and I, I like that feeling. It, yes. it, it was, it did something to me. 
Uh, I like to believe it, it passes through the phase of the annoying to the sublime. <laughs> um, whether, whether it does, I don't know, but for me it does. Um, uh, but yes, I, I agree, it's odd and distancing, and then hopefully by the time they're there in the fifth act, mm. it's strangely uh, penetrating and imposing mm. and slightly haunting. Yes. Now, you referred to the longest scene in the play, and I think I know which one that is, and it's a, a really marvellous scene. It's um, a marriage proposal, and one of the characters, this brings us to the issue of casting, mm. um, one of the characters in that scene is your wife. Mm. Um, My wife in real life. In yes. real life, yeah. yes. yes. Um, and um, I wanted to, on a real base, nosy level, mm. I just want to know what it's like to direct one's wife. You've cast her um, as a spinster. I don't know what yes. that says. <laughs> <laughs> well, when I, um, well, I've worked with my wife before yes. on, on this very stage. We yes. met at the National Theatre. She was in a production of uh, Joe Orton's What the Butler Saw. And I was, um, this is in 1995, yes. and Dealer's Choice, my first play, was on at the same time. And um, I was looking for actors to do a little workshop for an idea I had about a play, a play that eventually became closer. And so I was sort of generally seeing all the shows on at the National and my friend, Cathy uh, Burke, had said, oh, you should go and see my friend Debs. She's in What the Butler's also. I went and saw her friend Debs. And so we, that's how we met, really. We met here. Um, and I first glimpsed her probably about where you are now. And, um, uh, and then I directed her. I cast her in um, a production of Blue Remembered Hills, mm. also in the Littleton, where she played, um, played a seven-year-old girl. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I, and I directed that. So I had worked with her before, and I directed her on TV before. So it wasn't, it wasn't that strange, but it was, it was quite strange having her in the rehearsal room, but I, I really liked it. It was kind of fun. Mm. It was the most we've seen of each other in our entire marriage, really, was <laughs> working together yeah. um, and getting away from the kids. It was kind what of... What effect does it have on the rest of the cast, though? Because... And do you have to have a compact, a sort of vow of silence at home, you know? Because ordinarily, if you were directing a play, you might come home and sort of complain yes. about one of yes. the actors. Do you have to <laughs> change that? No, we have a sort of vow of gossip, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we, did, we talked about that at great length, and she wasn't going to do it for a while, and I, and, I, and I started to look at lists of other actors who could play the part, uh, because that was, it, it was a worry that... Um, uh, it could upset the ecology of a company. Um, but Deborah's a very, um, very good-natured person, and I don't think it's been a problem. No. Um, and I wrote the part for her. Yeah. When, I, when I first read the play, I thought, that's a great part for Debs. Yeah. And when it came to it, the thought of casting someone else, it just, mm. it just didn't feel right. <laughs> I wanted to see her play the part. And she's heaven in it, I think. She's great. She's, she's so great. funny and good in it. Um, I referred at the when I was just introducing you to this extraordinary year that you're having. And I, I, I know what the writing life is like. There's always this you know, expectation of disaster. And even when things are great, there's always something to be you know, complaining about. But um, how, how does it feel that the, you know, we're, we're coming into August now? And it's, it, it must be amazing. You must feel so replete in a way that you haven't felt for a, a long time. 
Yes, I do. I, f I feel very, um, uh, very, very grateful to mm. this theatre for having me back mm. and encouraging me. Rufus Norris and Ben Power have been fantastic. And I feel very relieved to have written some plays, mm. um, having not for so long. Um, and I'm, I feel truly blessed. I feel mm. this is an amazing time and I'm trying to remember to enjoy it <laughs> as much as possible. Um, because this, this probably won't happen again to have two plays on at the same time. Mm. Um, it's, it's a wonderful feeling. Mm. And, um, uh, and very strange, having sort of been so far away from having a play on mm. ever again, mm. um, to come back is like coming out of a wilderness. Mm. Um, and I think some of those themes have found that some of those feelings are in both of the plays, in fact, um, a feeling of returning. Um, to what you once had, or what you might have dreamt you had. I think that's those are potent themes mm. in both plays. And if you, uh, if you could say something that you've learned from that fallow period you had, and followed by this flowering, what what would it be? What is the thing that you will be telling yourself next year when you're stuck on something? Oh, humility. <laughs> um, that, that whatever gift you have, whatever talent you have, needs nurturing mm. and careful attention every day. Mm. Um, and that actually just, just being able to write is, is good enough. Um, my bar is low. Mm. Um, just to be able to do it mm. is reward enough. Of course, once you've written a thing, you have lofty ambitions for it. You become blasé very quickly. Mm. But actually, humility before the blank page. Mm. Um, whereas before the blank page was mm, a thing to be dreaded. Mm. I now have a slightly humble <laughs> attitude to it. Mm. And I just want to, to gently fill it if I can. <laughs> That'll be okay. Well, I, we have to stop because obviously everyone needs to come on and get ready for tonight's performance. But thanks for coming and thank you to Patrick. Thank you. <laughs>